I am totally embarrassed. Completely. Scott comes from Singapore and has a PowerPoint. I come from Tomball and my computer's at home. And I forgot to put it on the cloud and all that kind of stuff. It was a great PowerPoint, by the way. I mean, I've been working on it for two weeks. I had a great song. Some of you will remember it. Maybe I'll sing it. I don't know. Now, the reason I forgot it is because I was bringing, I was bringing famous Amos cookies. Remember last week, Paul, uh, Mark promised famous Amos cookies? Today, because we're talking about Amos, on the way out these two doors, please pick up a package or two of famous Amos cookies. Now, we have the Belgian chocolate. We also have made with Philippine coconut. That sounds pretty good, too. So get you one of each of those, thanks to Mark and his sweet wife, Becky. But uh, please forgive me for not having my power. Now, we'll have to do this the old-fashioned way. Is that okay? Uh, did anybody bring a Bible? Okay, some of you. If you have a Bible, bring out your Bible. And uh, last week, Mark had, had called a friend of his, Phil Keggy, to do a song. Remember that? Obadiah, Obadiah, Obadiah. My, how the prophet spoke, or something like that. Well, I called Phil this week, and Phil was not available. I was, so I called another friend of mine. He's he's a barber, and uh, he's also a songwriter. Uh, And he wrote a song a few years ago called Gloom, Despair, and Agony, Oh Me. Now, do you know that song? Let's sing that together. The key of F minor. Because it's a minor song. Gloom, despair, and agony, oh me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony, oh me. Remember that song? Why was I the only one singing? I could not hear you. Well, that's how it goes, I guess, when you forget your PowerPoint, right? That's how it goes. Well, anyway, I had, I had, the, I had the trio from Hee Haw many years ago sing, or the four guys from Hee Haw singing that. And the guy who wrote that song, I think, was the barber on there. I can't remember his name, honestly. I just called him Pete Cranky. I mean, instead of Phil Keggy, I figured Pink Cranky was probably okay. Well, the reason I did that is because I, 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 the book of Amos has got a lot of depressing gloom and doom and bad stuff in it. And famous Amos honestly has nothing to do with uh, the book of Amos. Wally Amos started the company back in 1975. He was a movie agent or a talent agent of some sort out in California Real, a brilliant guy, lives now in Florida, I think, 86 years old, but makes a darn good cookie. But this is not, will not depress you to eat this unless you gaining calories is not on your, your plan. But I thought what we would do today is we would read through certain sections. I, the, the title of my PowerPoint was Introducing Amos, and I just wanted to take you through some key places in the book of Amos. So find the book of Amos. It's on page 716 in my Bible. I hope you can find it. It comes after, it's the major prophets followed by the not so minor prophets. Not really minor at all. They're very important, very significant. 
But it's the third one in, Hosea, Joel, then Amos after that. Amos chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to look at several things that Amos is all about. And we're going to bring out some things for you. And next week when Mark gets back, hopefully with a PowerPoint, then uh, he'll be able to help us uh, see as well as to hear also. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The words of Amos, Devri Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw, ironically, words that he saw, words that he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we, call, we as scholars call that a, a superscription. It's kind of an introduction to the book. And it's the longest superscription of any of the prophetic books. It's got more information about Amos. We don't know who his father was. Uh, often those, those guys are named as well. But we're told here that he is a shepherd of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa, if I had my PowerPoint, I could show you where it is. It's south of Jerusalem, about 12 miles. And it's south of Bethlehem, about six miles. It's a little village down there, but Amos was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now that means, that word shepherds there does not mean he was a dude with a few sheep and goats. This was a breeder, a rancher, a fellow of means, a fellow who had quite an enterprise going of being a shepherd. Wool primarily, but also meat. He had a lot of stuff going for him. And he is down in the south, in the southern part of Israel, what Mark calls the, the southern kingdom, and others do as well, or Judah, where we get the term Jew today, from the south, and he is prophesying about what's happening in the north. Because even far, far, far north of where they were, there is an empire stirring. It's on the move. It's called the Assyrian Empire. They are beginning to gobble up little bits of territory, little bits of territory here and there, and they're on their way south, down the Fertile Crescent, up north of Syria they are at this point. They're going to move through Syria, through Lebanon, and ultimately come down to, to northern Israel, what we call in the New Testament Galilee. But this is when it's taking place. It's happening in the 8th century B.C., 8th centuries before Christ. If that's so, that makes Amos the first writing prophet. Now, I think Mark thinks Joel is, but he's wrong. It's Amos. At least I think he's wrong. But Amos is the first writing prophet. But remember, prophecy was spoken and heard before it was ever seen on a page. So Amos is speaking these prophecies. He's uttering those prophecies. When he wrote them down, who wrote them down, we don't know any of that. That information is not given to us here. But he's uttering these prophecies in the south about the north. And he even travels to the north in order to speak at the sanctuary called Bethel. Let's take a look in chapter 7. We've got to go all the way to chapter 7 to get this. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. 
One of the things that I love about Amos is he was gifted with a phenomenon known as second sight. Second sight is a way, uh, uh, is a prophetic way of seeing things and getting a, a message through what you see. He, he would have seen ordinary things, uh, things that you would see every day in the city, and God would speak to him through that. It's phenomenal. And so here's, here's one, chapter 7, verse 1. He is at Bethel, at the sanctuary there. He's going to basically be kicked out by the guy who's in charge. But before he's kicked out, he utters these testimonies. He utters these witnesses. This is what the Lord God showed me. This is what he showed me. If you had been there, you would have seen the same thing. But you might not have gotten, you probably would not have gotten the message that he got. So he sees ordinary things and gets an extraordinary message. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished, that is the locust had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob, how can this kingdom stand? He is so small. The locust invasion. I think I've described this to you before, but for those of you who weren't here, I've never seen a locust invasion, but Kathy and I were living in Fort Worth when they had a cricket invasion. I mean, crickets everywhere. I don't know where they came from. We were living in Fort Worth. We went down to a place called Target on Hewland Road, and there were just crickets everywhere. You could, you could look across the landscape, and it would just be sort of jumping landscape. You get out of your car, you open the door of the car, and you step and go crunch, 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 all the way to the, to the store. And then, you know, the stores, they have these automatic doors. They sweep open, right? The doors are sweep open. And there's a difference in pressure, air pressure. And when those door open, doors, doors opened, it would just suck in crickets, and so there was a guy at the door just sweeping out crickets. Now, that's nothing compared to what these guys are experiencing. Because we had a lot of concrete and we had a lot of, you know, asphalt and all that kind of stuff to kind of to soften the blow. But when you don't live with all of that, they're just everywhere. And so he sees this. He prays to God. In fact, one of the roles of the prophets was not just to speak to people but to speak to God on behalf of the people. They were priests in a way. And he spoke to God on behalf of the people, said, God, please, please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen, this judgment that's coming, this judgment of, of, of an army from Assyria that would come. And God said, okay, you've, provide, you've, you've convinced me. It says, the Lord relented, verse 3, concerning this, and it shall not be. End of that particular vision. And there's another vision. Uh, let's see, which one do we want to do? Let's do this. Verse 7. This is what the Lord showed me. If you had been there, you would have seen the same thing. Now he says the Lord. Now notice the word Lord there. What does it look like? It's, pro it's probably not the divine name, right? Mark's been talking about the divine name a lot. The Lord here was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. 
with a plumb line in his hand. Now, some of you know what a plumb line is. It's a way of keeping things straight when you're building. And the wall needed to be plumb and straight because if a, if, if a wall is plumb and straight, all of the weight of that wall goes on the foundation. But when a wall begins to lean a little bit, you ever seen that? When a fence begins to lean a little bit like that, all that weight gets out over top of it, and pretty soon it just crumbles. And so here in this particular vision, he saw, I think, probably what amounted to a carpenter, the master builder, out there with a plumb line against the wall, and he saw how crooked the wall was, and that reminded him how crooked Israel was. And so he, he saw in this vision and heard what God said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass them by. In other words, the time of intercession is over. You can plead with me, but the answer is no. Judgment is coming. He says, The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. In other words, judgment is sure, judgment is coming. Their so-called high places and worship places will be torn down, and there'll be one sanctuary left, the sanctuary that is in Jerusalem, the temple built by Solomon and dedicated roughly in the year about 950 A.D. So here's a prophet who saw things and pled with God, and God said, okay, I won't do that now. But ultimately, judgment does come. In fact, 40 years after these prophecies are uttered, we think that, Jer uh, that sorry, Jeremiah, sorry, that, that Amos starts prophesying roughly about the year 760 B.C. May have been a little later than that, but roughly 40 years later, the Assyrian army did go down into Israel and down into the land and begin to eat up, chew up territory, and ultimately Samaria itself, the northern kingdom, falls while the southern kingdom continues for another 150 years. Chapter 8, verse 1. One more vision. Scott, would you mind coming here, coming back up just for a minute? Can I, can I use you as an illustration? I saw his shirt, and I, I'm just, I just love that shirt. What's, what is that shirt? Tell us a little bit about that. It's called a batik called a batik, okay. It's the Southeast Asian shirt. Southeast Asian. And what's, what's on this shirt? Oh, I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> well, you know, when I saw it, it reminded me of a basket of summer fruit. Ah, yes. It's a basket of summer fruit. Is that, right. is that possible? So I want you to look at this shirt and see a basket of summer fruit. Now, what's your favorite summer fruit? Mm, avocado? Is that a summer fruit? Avocado? That's the wrong answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what the right answer is, but that was wrong. Okay. No, I, I guess it, no, I like avocado. Avocado's great. Okay, avocados, dates. I love dates. Plums, grapes, all those are good. So imagine him as a basket of summer fruit. Is that okay? Can we, can we do this? You need to keep standing. While they imagine a basket of summer fruit. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. 
And, he, and, and God said to Amos, Amos, what do you see? A basket of summer fruit. Kaitz. You know the Hebrew. Kaitz. And God spoke to him through what he saw, Kaitz. But he changed one vowel in the middle of that to Hakates. The Hakates has come upon my people Israel. The end has come. That's what Kates means. The end has come to my people Israel. God is saying that the time has run out. For three transgressions of Damascus, no, for four. It's a pattern we see over and over, particularly in the, in the beginning. And God's, God continues to speak. The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in their day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. That's the last word. Silence. Thank you, my friend. Basket of summer fruit. Missionary. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I bet that'll never happen to you again. You'll never be a basket of summer fruit. Well, these are just a few of the prophecies where Amos is prophesying the end, but he also gives us the reason. Most of these prophecies are against Israel, the northern kingdom. But he also takes a turn at, at in a sense, speaking against prophecies against the other nations that are round about, those nations too that will fall. Look back in chapter 1 for a moment. This would be so much better with my PowerPoint, but anyway. Chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 2, after the superscription, there's a beautiful image here of a roaring lion. Yahweh is a roaring lion. The Lord roars from Zion, city of Jerusalem. He utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Carmel is always green because it's right on the coast, always gets plenty of rain. But now when the lion roars, it all dries up and withers. And here's the pattern. These oracles against other nations we see this in other prophets and with other prophecies. These other nations are involved. They have been hassling and they have been raiding and they have been pillaging and they have been raping and they have been carrying off in human trafficking. They've been involved in all of that. Right around the edges of Israel, God's people. And little Israel was caught in the middle of all of that. And so he talks at first about Damascus in the north. And then he goes down to the southern coast in Gaza and Philistine. And then he goes up to Phoenicia. And then he goes down to Ammon. And he goes over to Moab and over to Edom and other places as well. And finally he gets to Judah. Just two verses on Judah. And then he moves up and spends most of his time with Israel. But here's a good example of, the trans, of what he says to Damascus to to the land of Aram, the Arameans. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Three transgressions? No, four. Why? Because they have threshed Gilead 
a Eastern uh, Israeli site with the threshing sledges of iron. Now, you and I are not agricultural people. If we saw a threshing sled, we draw by, we wouldn't know it. Let me try to describe it for you as a big sort of bit of wood, a wide piece of wood, probably not much smaller than a small car, piece of wood that big, nailed all together, put all together, and into that was implanted sharp stones that stuck down into the ground, and they would roll that over the wheat in order to thresh it. And they would, they would set a person on top of it. They'd build a sled of some sort. It was pulled by two oxen. So there would be two oxen pulling this sled, and underneath it would be this threshing sledge, he says made of iron here, which was a new invention. Iron was fairly new coming in. In the past, it had been big pieces of wood and rock down in there, and they would go over the wheat and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. It would begin doing that. Imagine that going over a human body. The weight of the oxen, the weight of the sled, the weight of the rider, and the rocks just peeling over the skin. This is what they had done to villagers of Gilead. Is that just metaphorical language? Well, perhaps. But he doesn't say that about the others. He's very particular here about what happens, about a soldier or a man being knocked to the ground and being rolled over with a threshing sled and just having his skin peeled off. A very painful, awful way to die. And the kind of thing that, when it happened, would be described over and over and over again. You know how these things go. You know how it gets into our mind. This is what they did to the people of Gilead. So God says this, I'm going to send fire upon the house of Hazael. It's going to devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate, the iron gates of Damascus. I'm going to cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter, the king in the city of Beth Eden, he's going to be cut off too, which means he's going to be killed, put to death. And the people of Syria are going to be led off into exile. They'll be stripped of everything that they own, and they'll be marched into exile, probably to slavery of some sort. And over and over, we get, we get these images of what these, these folks had been doing to the people of Israel, to God's people, and God said, I've had enough. And so judgment is going to come now upon them. One of the most difficult ones to read is what happens with Ammon. I think it's the one I'm remembering. Verse 13. For three transgressions of the Ammonites, no, for four, I will not revoke the punishment, for they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. You Jews are having too many babies, so we're going to cut them out of there. So the babies are aborted, the mothers are killed in the process. Did this happen? I think it did. It's not just a metaphor. 
It's a terrible thing. And God said, I've had enough. For three transgressions, maybe I would hold off, but for four, not at all. I'm coming. I'm on the move against these, and they will suffer, and they will suffer for what they have done. I will kindle a fire, God says, against the wall of Rabbah, their chief city, and it will devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king will go into exile, he and his princes all together. Doom and gloom coming. We need to hear that kind of message. I'm convinced that if all we ever preach is happy in Jesus, happy in Jesus, that we're going to miss a part of the, what we need to hear about correction, about where we've gone wrong, about our societies and about the violence. And if we could begin thinking, if you, if, you, if you stacked up all of these, the issue would be violence, 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 violence done against God's people. And I, and I look around and I listen to what's on the news and I hear about violence, family violence, gang violence, violence against the elderly, sexual violence, gun violence. How many kinds of violence can we invent and how long are we going to get away with that before something happens? There's a teaching in the Bible that goes through the Bible that goes something like this. Obedience to God brings blessing. Disobedience brings hardship and, as you said, the curse. Obedience to God if God's people, in fact, we can look over this and we can see, and let me take you to the very last, we're almost done, very last profile that we have here that is a profile of restoration. After all of the damnation, after all the condemnation, after all the sins have been atoned for and have been punished, there is a moment at the very end of the book of hope. The God who brings judgment also brings restoration. God will restore his people. He might judge his people, and he did, but he will also restore them. He might judge the nations, but he will also restore them. And sometimes we get the idea, well, all of, all of divine retribution and all of divine judgment, that's in the Old Testament. We have a God of love. Really? It's true. But is there not retribution in the new? Is there not danger and threat in the new? Read the book of Revelation and see what will happen. See what does happen. Here's that, here's that oracle. Look in chapter 9, very last chapter. Beginning in verse uh, 11, just five verses, but it's a powerful way to end. And so many of these psalms are the same way. They end with a cry of despair, and that's how they, the psalms begin, and they end on a very high note. Chapter 9, verse 11, in that day, God said, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. The booth of David, the house of David, the dwelling of David, the king, 
that king who will be deposed, in a sense, in 586 B.C., not by the Assyrians to the north, but by the Babylonians to the east, who will traipse up the Fertile Crescent and then down and ultimately be victorious in taking over all the territory that had been ceded to the Assyrians at one time. They will become the overlords of that world. And the, and the, and the rule of David will seem to come to an end, a halt, But God says, in that day, when that day comes, when I'm ready for it, when the time is right, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I'm going to repair its breaches. I'm going to raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. That they, that is the people of David, his subjects, may possess the remnant of Edom, a nation that will go into the byways and highways of history and all the nations who are called by my name look at verse 13 i love this image behold the days are coming declares yahweh when the plowman shall overtake the reaper the one who is plowing the next year's crop they're going to be right on top of the person who's harvesting They can't get the harvest in fast enough. It's time to plant. There's so much abundance that it takes them so long to gather it that they're ready to plant the next year. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, the one who has sown the seed. So many grapes, so much wheat, so much barley, so much goodness coming from God's earth. And he goes on to say that the mountains, and there are a lot of mountains over in Israel, will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That's the picture of abundance that's coming. That's the image of heaven that we get. Not heaven as a place away, but heaven is heaven on earth. This is what God will do. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, that nation that will be carried away. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their their, their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I had given them. That is a complete reversal of fortunes. For they had been uprooted from the land, they had built houses, they had planted vineyards, and somebody else came in and ran them off. So they never got to live in the houses they built or eat the fruit of the gardens that they planted. And this happened time after time after time. And when they did stay in the land that they were given, when they did stay, The marauders who would come in over the border would would kill all of their animals, take all of their their wool and take all of their their meat. They They would take all of the fruit off the trees. They would cut down the trees and it would take another 10 years of growth before those trees would produce again. That's the kind of world that they lived in. It's the kind of trouble that they they knew. And God said, I'm bringing that to an end. It's over. It's done. Let me, just a few points from home. First of all, don't forget your famous Amos cookies. Don't forget those. Because if, if you forget them, then I have to take them home. 
let's not think of the Old Testament as a testament only of divine retribution, divine judgment. There's a lot of promise there. There's a lot of hope. I think the most stunning and moving pictures of forgiveness in all the Bible are found in the Old Testament. Maybe I'll talk about that one day. Most stunning, moving pictures of forgiveness are found there, and that's prior to the cross, right? So the Old Testament is not just about judgment. The New Testament is not just about restoration. No, it's mixed in both. We need to see the Bible for what it is. It's not just one or the other. There's not one God who's judgmental in the past and one God who's loving in, 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 in the future or in the present. No, it's the same one. Could be expressed differently. But that's the way we need to think about it. God uses ordinary people like shepherds running a business to do extraordinary things. And, and it's possible to see in, in ordinary things like summer fruit or a plague of locusts or a plumb line being set against a wall. It's, promised, it's, it's possible to hear a message a divine message, a heavenly message through both very ordinary things. Some of you experienced that probably before. And finally, as we think about this particular book, the book of Amos, the book of Amos talks about how the fact that God is not just God over the people of Israel. God is God over all the people of the earth. They answer to him ultimately. Maybe he established them as a people. Maybe he gave them the land that he gave them, just like he gave Israel. Maybe all of those things, but he's, and they went off and worshiped other gods. But, it, but in fact, what, what we need to see is that God is in control of all of those nations. He is sovereign over all of those nations. He's the God of all. Jesus is the Lord of all, as the New Testament declares it. My hope would be is that as we come and we read more in Amos, and Mark's going to lead us in other studies of Amos, that we kind of got a little bit of a smattering at 30,000 feet, roughly, of what's going on in Amos. A prophet of gloom, but a prophet of restoration. A prophet who speaks mainly to Israel and the northern kingdom from the south, but a, prom, a, a prophet who also knows his own land as well and, and urges the people of Judah to be people of the covenant. Final verses, chapter 2. This is God's, what God says to Judah, the southern kingdom, through the prophet. For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have, notice there's no language here of violence. They have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes, but their lives have led them astray, those after which their fathers had walked. Their fathers had walked in obedience. They are now walking in disobedience. And it's not for violence, but it's just simply for disobedience that the Lord will exercise judgment upon his people of Judah. God's people everywhere need to understand that obedience is what brings blessing 
in this world. And if we disobey, we disobey, we disobey, we'll find hardship, adversity, the curse right around every corner. And uh, my prayer would be is that we would heed the words of Amos and we would listen to him as a prophet, not just to Israel in 2,800 years ago, roughly, but would see them as words to us, urging us to obedience, urging us to look forward to a day of restoration when the mountains will drip sweet wine, when those who are harvesting cannot bring in the harvest fast enough because the abundance of the land is so rich and so clean and so pure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these good folks. Thank you for their kindness this morning and thank you for Scott and for, for all that he and so many others like him are doing around the world. And, and I ask that maybe perhaps if there's one man, one woman in here today or maybe two or three or more who, who might feel and sense that you might be calling them to a life of missions. I pray that they'll stop us before they go and talk to Scott and talk to me and talk to other people here and say, help me with this, pray for me, counsel me, urge me. We ask that from this crowd this morning and those watching on the internet right now, I ask that you raise up someone, some two, some three, who will follow and share and take the gospel to places where it has not been. And we ask that in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.